Hello and welcome to 1000 Words, Stories on the Way. My name is Matthew Clark and I'm very glad you're here today. And I'm especially glad you're here because I get to introduce you to one of my favorite friends and favorite writers, Amy Lee. Uh, She did help out on several of the Holy Week episodes, but I'm really glad to have her back here for a full episode of her own. Uh, So a little bit about Amy. Uh, Amy Beck Lee is a member, writer, and co-director of the Anselm Society Arts Guild near Colorado Springs. Her work has been featured on Anselm Media, Story, Warren, The Rabbit Room, and uh, Cultivating Project magazine. Uh, In her own words, she says her, quote, work stems largely from wonder at the redemptive love of Christ and the reorienting grace of beauty. And if you've ever read her essays before or you've listened to the talks that she's given at Anselm Society's Imagination Redeem Conference, then you know already that Amy has a way of seeing. She has a way of seeing those beauties God has so gracefully invested in this world and by her own word craft, um, making what she's seen available to us. And in that way, she invites us to perceive and to participate in Christ's redemptive love as she makes her wonder um, communicable. Her essay this week is about seeing and being called to perceive more than might at first be apparent. Amy literally sees the world differently because she has grapheme color synesthesia, where the typically separate brain centers for visually processing numbers and colors are intertwined. Amy calls this a personal quirk, but wonders whether it's a clue together with uh, inconsolable longing that might lead us toward a synthesis of kingdom sensitivity. How might not just eyesight, but all our physical senses play a vital role in perceiving God's inbreaking kingdom here and now and faithfully anticipating its full future realization. That's something else I love about Amy's writing and her way of seeing in this world, that she's always on the lookout for breadcrumbs, for little clues that help us trace our way homeward. Uh, She says in the words of C.S. Lewis that she is, quote, ever seeking to press on to her true country and to help others to do the same. So you definitely want to check out more of her essays and her stories about living homeward online at her website, amybecklee.com. That's Amy, A-M-Y-B-A-I-K-L-E-E.com. Uh, she's also on Facebook and Instagram at Amy Beck Lee. Um, I'll post all those links on my podcast homepage too, over at my website matthewclark.net/podcast. So, without further ado, here is Amy Lee sharing her essay, Synesthesia.
At this precise minute, they are a visual symphony, a fresh grassy green, a deep and regal blue, a piquant shade of yellow-orange. But like a window-facing desk worker who has grown accustomed to the view, through the years I have been dulled to the vibrancy that presents itself to me at nearly every turn. I see colors in numbers, you see, and it is 2.07 p.m. I see colors in numbers, but not physically. I'm aware that the clock on my computer is a no-nonsense black, and somehow, at the same time, I am equally aware that the digits have hues. This is a quirk that goes by the name of synesthesia, a phenomenon in which stimulation along one cognitive pathway causes an involuntary impression in another. For some people, music triggers physical sensations upon the skin or tastes in the mouth. Some see units of time, like days of the week or months of the year, as items arranged at a particular distance from their bodies. The number of possible intertwined combinations between the senses, in my opinion, is as astonishing as the fact that they can commingle at all. In my case, a fairly common version called grapheme color synesthesia Numbers or letters or words have a distinct but consistent color. For me, two and eight are different shades of green, and five is a rich red. Four and seven are distinguishable variations of orange. The colors themselves don't change, but I've noticed a number can appear highlighted or faded next to another, the way a blue sweater brings out the color of someone's eyes. I don't mind having this condition, and I rarely think about it unless prompted by specific situations. Recently, as my daughter and I read through an American history lesson together, I almost mentioned that an easy way to remember 1865 would be to recall that it is white, green, purple, red. I caught myself in time. Neurologists don't yet know the causes and mechanisms of synesthesia. Some scientists have believed that childhood activities might pair one stimulus with another, Others think we're all born with a multitude of connections between our senses, and that some people have a mutation that preserves some of these connections as they grow. For my part, this neural spaghetti has given me a deeper appreciation for other associations the brain can make. I find, for instance, that the overall voice of an essay or story or chapter carries a musical effect for me. The correlation isn't as direct as the synesthesia, not as if I hear notes upon the air, but I wait for it when I read the closing paragraphs of a work. Sometimes the sound lingers, sometimes it hangs like a suspended or unresolved chord, and sometimes it reverberates in one sweet, echoing whole note. And then, in the works that I love most, there is something more. A quality that struck C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien long ago which they referred to as northernness, at times hovers just beyond the circle of my senses. For these two authors, the tang of a certain high, bracingly clear atmosphere stirred them so deeply that for decades they sought to celebrate and pass it on. It awoke a yearning in them that could not be sated here. Inkling scholar Serena Higgins notes that Lewis loved any work that could provoke this longing, and he strove to evoke it in his own readers, too. J.R.R. Tolkien also packed his writings with longing, with the romantic note, 
with a wild, sweet, painful yearning for something located off in the West, beyond the seas, beyond the world, that is inaccessible and infinitely desirable. Finding these illusions in their works has given me deep joy. To me, they are confirmation that I am not dealing with a mere figment of the imagination. In the same way that scientists can see the color-perceiving part of the brain light up in synesthetes, the inconsolable longing, as Lewis phrased it, has a function and an effect in the soul. More lies before and around and behind me than I can capture in a word, a glance, or a photograph. There is more that draws me to Christ and his humanity and his glory than a doctrinal outline. The unseen influences, battles, and work of our present lives are etching the shape of eternity, even now. Sometimes I am wholly aware of it. Other times, the beauty and the breadth of this wide story pierce through with startling suddenness. Having this joined perception of the immediate and the eternal, I found, is both the strangest and most natural thing in the world. Our senses are quickened by the Holy Spirit, even before we know who He is. As we follow our King, we begin to come alive to connections between truths and beauties that have been there all along, but are only just coming into clarity. Even so, it is far too easy to abandon the things we glimpse for strictly corporeal things. It is easier for me to read the exhortations and commands in Scripture as dry words, easier to believe that disease and disaster and ashes are the end game rather than valleys of shadow on the way home. I am more practiced at using my senses to detect symptoms than to observe the wind of the Holy Spirit moving. But the lesson of using all of our senses in accord with Christ's truth, even while accepting their jarring fragmentation, is one that I must learn now. Eugene Peterson notes in Reversed Thunder that we are always in danger of reducing the Word of God to ink on a page. He says, Marks on paper, via the imagination, make pictures and sounds that involve us as living persons who hear and see and touch in our encounter with reality. In the Revelation, John exercises all five senses, plus his mind and emotions, prodding the imagination to experience afresh, personally and wholly, what is in danger of being only acknowledged intellectually. The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Our senses are not a spiritual encumbrance or defect, filling us with empirical data to be ignored. They are to be used as we perceive that reality is far greater and higher and deeper than we once thought. Sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, and more meeting in the kingdom of God. Umami, one of the five basic tastes, was only named in the 20th century. The color blue has historically been one of the last colors named in languages across the world. These make me wonder what other beautiful sensations lie before us that we have not yet corporately experienced or acknowledged. Meanwhile, the way the golden hour light cuts through my room in the spring and summer quiets me into waiting before the throne of grace like nothing else can. The grandeur of Holst's Jupiter the Bringer of Jollity and the plaintive second movement of Dvorak's Symphony No. 9 even Thomas Newman's brief Valley of the Shadow, break open and flood through inward gates. 
These and similar things reopen an ache that helps me continually to hear the Spirit echoing the Word, to see the kingdom of God encroaching on my doorstep, even as the practicalities and principalities of the world scramble to drown it out. The resolution between the things we see and the things that are hidden from our eyes is coming. The day is approaching when at last all things will make sense to our senses, and we who have tasted the goodness of God will have no more bitter gall to mar our delight. We will hear his voice and not have to beg it to cease. We will touch his wounds and trace them with the glad wonder born of a long faith. We will see him without perishing as he wipes tears from our eyes. We will be the aroma of Christ, no longer repelled as the stench of death. Then we shall know a mystery that no pathway in my mind can fathom now, the joy of dwelling fully in his presence, and the exhilaration of finding that space to be wilder and wider than we could ever have guessed, when, at long last, the joined perceptions of the body of Christ come together to grasp the scope of glory. close, Amy suggested this poem called Sudden Heaven by Ruth Pitter. Um, these moments of sudden heaven, uh, these are the moments when um, what Amy calls joined perceptions take place. And we see uh, with a kind of God-given synesthesia, our present reality saturated with what is to come. So uh, here is Ruth Pitter's sudden heaven. All was as it had ever been. The worn, familiar book, the oak beyond the hawthorn seen, the misty woodland's look, the starling perched upon the tree with his long tress of straw, when suddenly heaven blazed on me, and suddenly I saw saw all as it would ever be in bliss too great to tell, forever safe, forever free, all bright with miracle. Saw as in heaven the thorn arrayed, the tree beside the door, and I must die, but oh, my shade shall dwell there evermore. Well, a big thanks to Amy Lee for sharing with us this week. Uh, please do go find her online at amybecklee.com. That's A-M-Y-B-A-I-K-L-E-E.com. Uh, she's also on Instagram and Facebook, same name. And let her know that you enjoyed her episode. I think it's really great um, to take a minute to encourage the ones who encourage you. So please get in touch with her and let her know. Um, meanwhile, keep all of your senses sensitive to the kingdom of Jesus. And thank you for listening, and I will see you next week.